Hello and welcome to part two of the Films of 2015 podcast. This is Who Writes This Stuff, a uh, very special edition since we retired it back in November. Um, this is sort of our annual tradition if you missed part one. It'd be weird if you're listening to part two. Um, but you know what? I'm not going to tell you how to live your life as always. But uh, we're sort of rehashing. This is my favorite sort of uh, annual tradition, I guess, of the podcast. Um, so I got together with my buddy Jeff Houston, who lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, we, uh, you know, we get together, we, we make these top 10 lists and we go through them. And this is part two of that. So if you missed part one, we went through our. Uh, our choices for 10 through six and this is the top five episodes so um go back and listen to that if you want and uh we get into it we also get into some oscar talk we talk about some honorable mentions basically just make a list of of all these movies and uh you basically have your netflix <laughs> netflix queue for the next year um so but before we get into the uh, this part two episode with where jeff and i count down our top five movies of 2015 um, I asked you guys to write in and uh, tell me your favorite uh, films of 2015. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that we mentioned on, on the first uh, half, uh, part one of episode. So, um, but then a few that maybe need to be highlighted. So um, let's go into that now. Kathy Frazier, good pastor, said Love and Mercy. And uh, although after she sees it, she says it's going to be Brooklyn. And uh, I love that, <laughs> the faith in that, because we discussed Brooklyn a little bit on this episode. Uh, Ashley Thomas, it's Star Wars. A, you know, come on, Star Wars. Uh, I'm not going to argue with that at all. And uh, <laughs> she also said she's honestly trying to remember what uh, she saw this year. But really, it's just Star Wars. Uh, Derek Hale says Star Wars, The Revenant, Love and Mercy and Dope. All movies that are either on my list or in my honorable mentions, all uh, really great movies. Um, Tom Henderson said Ex Machina, um, which uh, was my number 10, if you'll remember. Uh, Madeline Clark said Room. Brie Larson killed it. I totally uh, agree, 100%. Joel Springer said Straight Out of Compton. Rickley James said Spotlight was probably the film that affected me the most this year. Uh, quote, if it takes community to raise a child, then it takes community to abuse them very chilling and i agree that was a really amazing movie uh david collins uh wrote in and said mad max is the first movie in a long time that i can't stop watching over and over uh sean williams said current top 10 uh is mad max sicario the martian spotlight inside out ex machina dope trumbo which is a movie we haven't discussed yet um room and the big short um I've seen most of those, and they're really good, uh, the ones I've seen anyway. I can't speak to the ones I haven't, unfortunately. Um, and let's see. Keith Cotton, Catone, Keith Cotone says, Inside Out, Mad Max Fury Road, Ex Machina, Star Wars, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, uh, Shaun the Sheep, and A Walk in the Woods, um, which uh, are all worthy as far as the ones I've seen. Um a lot of this, we're, we're seeing the same ones over and over again, which I, I really like. It just means that um, either we're very similar-minded or they're just, these movies are, you know, they speak for themselves. They're If, if they're good, they're good. And if they entertain, they entertain. And uh, you can't argue with that. So, uh, well, let's get into it. I'm not, this is already a long episode, which is all packed with goodness. I really couldn't edit anything out because I enjoyed this conversation so much. And not just because I'm a part of it. But uh, so let's get into it. Here's uh, part two of the top films of 2015 with my guest, Jeff Houston.
My number five uh, is the film Carol. Dearest, there are no accidents and no explanation I offer will satisfy you. I like that. You seek resolutions because you're young. But you will understand this one day. How many times have you been in love? You're always the most beautiful woman in the room. Therese Bellavet. Carol. Uh, you actually mentioned it earlier uh, as a movie that didn't quite fully work for you. Right. And even though it didn't necessarily resonate to me emotionally... It is uh, the main reason I have it so high on my list is uh, it basically is a film school in and of itself. Uh, that's the best way I can nutshell it. It's from writer-director Todd Haynes, although he didn't write this one. Um, and it might be his best directorial effort. And not only is it just beautiful and lush. It's set in New York, early 1950s. And so as a period piece, just the production values are amazing and very specific. I mean, it would make, you know, Matthew Weiner, who did Mad Men, it would make him jealous no to watch, like, oh my God, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just that exquisite visually in, in the detail and the accuracy and just the beauty of it. Um, but just what he, you know, without... Getting into the story outside of the basic premise is it's early 1950s. It's ba uh, the story is based on a novel, and it's just the story of a woman who's going through a divorce, uh, and she's she's a lesbian, and so her marriage is breaking up inevitably as a result of that, and so it, it ends up being this love story between two women at a time when they don't have you know the openness to pursue that. Right. Um, and so, like I said, that in and of itself didn't necessarily move me one way or the other, although the performances by Kate Blanchett and Rudy Mara are spectacular uh, in and of themselves. And, and really, it might be even some of Kate Blanchett's best work, which is saying something. Because for Blanchett, a lot of her more famous roles, she's very volatile characters. Certainly, Blue Jasmine, which she won an Academy Award for, is uh, very typical of that. And this is the opposite. It's very controlled, very interior, but there's always emotion, deep wells of emotion bubbling underneath that. Um, so it's it's a very impressive performance on that level. But back to Todd Haynes as a filmmaker, you know, it, it's hard to articulate uh, what I mean by it's a film school in and of itself. But all I can say is there are choices that he makes throughout that uh, he's always in a story that so easily could be melodramatic, never is. It's, it's uh, in fact, some critics of Todd Haynes think that overall he's sort of a cold, distant filmmaker, but I think he makes just the right choices where it so easily could seep into very obvious melodrama, and yet he keeps it always at a very real place in the midst of this very sumptuous visual and so it doesn't feel like this gritty indie, but it has the grit and the reality of the human experience. And so I just, I like the choices he makes as a director, as well as so many of the visual frames are just, uh, they embody in an image what the film is trying to communicate about the character 
or the themes of the story about repression and duality and hiding a part of yourself from the world. And even images just capture that. So that's basically why I have it this high is I walked out of it thinking um, that that's as well-directed a film as you know you can see. There, it, it's just flawless directorially. It's flawless in its craftsmanship. And it's kind of one of those things where it's like, man, if I, I don't even know how to get there. And, you know, I aspire to be a filmmaker. That's just one of those things like, man, if I could ever achieve that, uh, that level of artistry and just uh, the insight within each little decision all along the way. Uh, again, at, at the end of the day, I know a lot of what I'm saying sounds very vague, but as somebody who aspires to make films well, this is a film that I watched and thought, man, that's as, as good as filmmaking gets. And so that's why I have Carol at number five. Yeah, and deservedly so. And, and although it didn't resonate with me personally on the whole, everything that you said about the set design and tonality of, of the, the director and then those two main performances, especially, like deserved of every single uh, award acclaim that they're getting uh, and nomination for sure. I was uh, that, that was the main thing that made me more like to continue watching it and, and be invested was the was Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett for sure. And maybe the best example I can give about what I'm talking about, about just the, the genius of, of the direction is if you've seen the film or if you do end up seeing it, there's there's the opening scene. And eventually we kind of the film comes back around to that scene again and references that scene, but from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And when we see that new perspective, your whole experience with the movie has just been transformed in a very powerful way. And so that's maybe, the, again, the, most, the best, most glaring example I can point out. Yeah. But then there's a lot of little examples of that that just add up throughout the, that he just makes continually throughout the course of the film. That it, The whole time I was watching, I was just thinking, man, that is just so, that is such the right directorial choice and temperament and just the exact right tone every step of the way again and then not to mention just you're just kind of blown away by it visually like you would when you're watching Mad Men or something like that yeah Uh, my let's see number five is a a good example I talked about at the beginning of the podcast being seeing a movie and not really know how you feel about it and then it lives with you for a while and then before you know it you're like I have to see this again and then it's a completely different experience and that that was what happened to me when I saw uh, my number five which is the end of the tour When I think of this trip, I see David and me in the front seat of his car. He wants something better than he has. I want precisely what he has already. David. Wallace. Welcome to Minneapolis. Uh, Hi, I'm I'm David Lewski. How are you? Hi. Okay, David and David. We only just met. He's writing a piece on the tour. What's this story about in your mind? Just what it's like to be the most talked about writer in the country, that sort of thing. You're like a nervous guy, huh? <laughs> no, 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 I'm okay. How are you? Because I'm terrified. I gotta ask, what is with the bandana? I know that it's a security blanket for me whenever I'm kind of afraid my head is gonna explode. <laughs> if we ate like this all the time, what would be wrong with that? It's like good, seductive commercial entertainment, like, uh, like Die Hard. Uh, first Die Hard? First Die Hard. Great film. Yes. No, it's a brilliant the film. The best. Hey, isn't it reassuring to have a lot of people read you? I think if the book is about anything, yeah. it's about the question of, why? Why am I doing it? And what's so American about what I'm doing? 
um, from director James Ponsel, who had one of my favorite movies from last year. I think it was last year. Spectacular Now, was that last year? I believe so, yeah. Great movie. Great movie. And um, this film, um, it follows the five-day interview with acclaimed author David Foster Wallace, played by Jason Segel. Um, who's being interviewed by Rolling Stone reporter David Lipsky, played by Jason Jesse Eisenberg, uh, 12 years before Wallace's suicide in 2008. And um, it's basically just these two dudes. And what I said about uh, Mad Max not having a lot of conversation, um, this is... this is <laughs> It's all conversation. Totally my kind of <laughs> film, because there is so much conversation happening in this movie. It's basically all it is between these two guys and a few other characters that come in and out. But it's so interesting to me how much is said in the subtext and how um, this film unfolds as a series of conversations between the two writers, uh, Lipsky being sort of a, a wannabe Wallace, if you will, in a lot of ways. The, it goes from polite but skeptical pleasantries at the beginning. And you kind of feel that awkwardness when two guys meet and they're not, they might be more introverted the, uh, than, than extroverted uh, to potential pals, um, you know, relating on everything from, you know, gas station snack food to Alanis Morissette, um, with the underlying sprinkle of jealousy and artistic self-doubt thrown in for good measure. Of course, when any, any kind of artistic people get together and start comparing themselves to each other's journey. Uh, but I entered this film the whole time thinking, as a lot of people did, can Jason Siegel pull this off? <laughs> and, right. you know, that's to, to everybody's, you know, to, to figure out for themselves. But before I knew it, I wasn't thinking about that anymore. Uh, because his portrayal of Wallace was so raw and earnest that not only uh, did I feel for him, but I saw myself in him. And in a guy that if you even ever tried or read Infinite Jest, you would never think, oh, this guy's relatable. Um, because I, it's such a dense book to even try to tackle <clears throat> in so many ways. And in, in a lot of ways is sort of the epitome of pretension, uh, that book. And, and um, maybe I need to attempted again but for me specifically I was like I don't know how this is going to go but um, I like how David Rooney for the Hollywood Reporter put it uh, quote this is a man of endless contradictions he's shaggy and sleepy headed but sharp and always questioning Riley candid but then unexpectedly defensive and guarded and uh, it's interesting how Eisenberg's character of David Lipsky is sort of probing Wallace to get the answers to these questions he's dying to know you know I think for the article but also uh, for himself, basically, how does it feel to be famous and critically acclaimed and all these things that why we are interested in celebrity, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and we want to know, you know, in our sort of ego's mind that, oh, if we reach a certain level of fame or celebrity or wealth, that we will be fulfilled. And I feel like he's sort of asking these questions, you know, to, to get the, the secret answer of yes, if you're seeking this, you know, fame and fortune, you, it will make you whole. And Wallace doesn't have that because he doesn't feel that. And uh, he doesn't have the answer that Lipsky's looking for because the society that we have, is, is, it is made up of mostly non-famous people. So like I said, we want so badly for the answer to be, it's amazing. It's everything you hoped it would be. Um, but it's so often not the case, and especially here. And I really didn't know, like I said, how to feel about this film when it ended. It sort of like leaves the audience to take away what it will take away from this experience. And there's not sort of a button put at the end where, where everybody's fully realized and understood because it is a moment in time in these two writers' lives. Um, but I heard an interview with Jason Siegel um, where he summed up the movie by saying that it's about two guys, one looking for the answers and one looking for a friend. And after rewatching that with that mindset, I really saw the pure motivation behind both these characters. 
And there's so often where David Lipsky will ask him, you know, something about something specific or his upbringing or, you know, and, and then Wallace will fire right back and be like, what about you? What about your parents? And he's just sort of like, you know, cause he, Wallace craves that connection. He wants this mm-hmm. connection with another human being. And Lipsky is just seeing himself as this reporter. Um, so I, I really saw the pure motivation between these characters and resonated equally on both sides. Cause I have been both of those characters. So the end of the tour lets us hang out with these two different writers who strive rigorously to never completely let their guard down. Um, although of course they end up becoming themselves as we all do and right in front of us. So that makes, that, that's what makes this movie, uh, elevated by two extraordinary actors in my opinion. Um, one of my favorite and maybe the best of 2015. So end of the tour is my number five. It's not in my top 10, but it's definitely an honorable mention. Uh, it is a, uh, just a great piece of simple filmmaking that strips uh, sort of any sense of uh, cinematic style out of the way just so that we really can focus on the conversation between these two guys. And that's what the film needs to be. And so uh, directorially as sort of simple as it is, it needs to be that way. And so that's very intuitive uh, from a filmmaking perspective. Uh, you know, and to your point about, um, well, first of all, I, I should say you'd mentioned that uh, for people who aren't as familiar with David Foster Wallace, that he did commit suicide. Uh, just so you know, that's not a spoiler no. of the film. The film opens addressing the fact that he killed himself. So uh, that it kind of unfolds from that basis and then goes into flashback. Um, but uh, what's interesting to me about Foster Wallace is while his core issue was this lifelong battle with depression, it specifically expressed itself more than anything as his conflict of not wanting to be phony. It was yeah. just, it's like, that was the, the, the thing. He, he never wanted to be phony. He always wanted to be real. And not just didn't want to be phony with other people, but like just alone in his house with himself. He didn't want to be phony with himself. Yeah. And if he ever caught himself being phony with himself, it just, uh, it just messed with him and it tormented yeah. him. Any sense of phoniness. And so that becomes fascinating just in terms of his character and then how that plays off with Lipsky is Lipsky's desire for what Wallace has achieved as a writer is from a phony motivation. Yeah. <laughs> and so Wallace's struggle with not wanting to be phony is causing Lipsky for the first time to confront, oh, wait, I am a phony. You know, I'm a phony with yeah. my artistic ambitions. I'm a phony with my girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, and, and so it's this really interesting thing. And yet, um, and, and so, but but what's... Even though it is this story about uh, Wallace's depression and it didn't end well, what is still, I guess, hopeful about it, and this was always the hope that Wallace was looking for, was in this battle between not wanting to be phony and always wanting to be authentic, what his longing was for is that honesty would bring healing. Yeah. And so, and, and I think it was those moments, and I think it's depicted well in the film, those moments when he was his most authentic was when he had his respites from depression and didn't feel depressed. And so for thus, for the, whether you struggle with depression or even if you don't, I think that's a great takeaway from this film is the hope that honesty can bring healing. And, and that's, that's a truth. And I think that's, uh, that's a theme of this film. And uh, so anyway, that's just, and it all resonates because of the d- dynamic between these two people. Yeah. Um, okay, now I am... Number four. Number four. Uh, again, 
we hinted at this a little bit with a music uh, track just a little bit ago. Um, Spotlight is at number four. This has been sort of the consensus critical darling along with Mad Max Fury Road, understandably so. Um, this is, if you're not familiar with the film, it's based on the true story of, uh, in 2001, the Boston Globe, their, uh, uh, their investigative reporting expose into the Catholic Church's uh, priest uh, abuse scandal of children, child sexual abuse predominantly of young boys. And this is their investigation and their uncovering of that reality that before 2001, we didn't know really that it existed culturally. And, um, and so this is the story of how the newspaper uh, and the team, and it was called the Spotlight Team. That's where the title of the film is derived from. The, the, the investigative team at the Boston Globe is called the Spotlight Team. And this is a subtle, what's great about this film is it so easily, I mean, the red meat was right there to just rip the Catholic Church apart. And, um, and writer-director Tom McCarthy doesn't give in to that at all. And again, it so easily could have. It could have just been this screed against the Catholic Church, and it isn't. It really is a very subtle, sober, and humble film in the way it approaches its subject. It refuses to go into melodramatics. Again, where it so easily could have had just this grandstanding scenes of yeah. acting and emotion and all that. And it just, it, it, it intentionally avoids all that. And so it all feels very real. So it's, and then when you've got this subject matter of, of sexual abuse, it very easily could be gratuitous or salacious. I mean, we certainly see, you know, those kinds of uh, shows on television, crime stories that instantly go to the, you know, most salacious, gratuitous, you know, aspects of these kinds of stories. And yet, so this film completely avoids all that. And yet it's still extremely honest and raw. By avoiding those salacious elements from a visual perspective and even from a narrative perspective, being very humble and sober about them, it's in no way skirting around the issue. We see some very honest and raw uh, testimonies of people who've been abused. And, uh, and so it's very hard hitting as well. And then not only is it not looking to... Uh, rip apart the Catholic Church, but it's actually indicting of corruption in all of our major institutions, certainly uh, obviously the Catholic Church here, but it indicts the local government and it's uh, uh, and how it helped the Catholic Church kind of keep all this secret. And then even ultimately, and this is really the true humility of the film, it even indicts the Boston Globe itself, where in the past they had knowledge and never reported it. And so, to me, that's the ultimate example of it's not looking to tear the Catholic Church apart. It's taking an honest look at everybody's culpability. And so, and even as it indicts the paper itself, ultimately what it's saying is, hey, we're not presenting these reporters as heroes. Mm -hmm. Again, like most movies would have. Yep. The reporters are heroes, and they're the righteous crusaders. And they're as kind of humbled, as conflicted as everybody else in this process. And so, uh, so it's, it's just, it's the finest form of filmmaking on all the core fundamental levels, acting, writing, directing, perfectly metered, perfectly toned, impressively restrained, uh, not only in the performances, but even in the craftsmanship. And uh, it's one of those things where it's so subtle and so effectively subtle 
that you might not realize just how well directed it is. You watch something like Mad Max and you think, oh my gosh, obviously this is a great directorial effort. Mm -hmm. Um, This is sort of the opposite of that, but it's equally hard to pull off. And maybe the best example, there was actually just the perfect compare contrast in 2015. So Spotlight is how you, uh, specifically in the realm of journalism, uh, how you depict something correctly. Then there was another film called Truth, which was about the 60 Minutes uh, scandal. Dan that, Rather. Yeah, the Dan Rather thing where Dan Rather and 60 Minutes and and the, the producer uh, Mar- Marley Mapes, or I forget her name, she's played by Kate Blanchett in the film. Anyway, they erroneously reported some things about uh, President George W. Bush's uh, service in the Air National Guard. So there's a big scandal. Anyway, that film is completely melodramatic and completely biased, completely one-sided. And it just was rolling my eyes the whole time. And then I saw Spotlight maybe a week or two after that. And oh, I was wow. just like, oh my goodness, everything that Truth did wrong, Spotlight did exactly right. And and, and both in the same world of journalism. Interesting. And so and and not only does it uh, show uh, within that, you know compare and contrast of journalism, but just even at the core level of one film is biased and one film isn't biased. And the one film that is biased, most films carry their particular bias, whatever the subject is. And Spotlight so easily could have been another one of those movies and isn't. And that to me more than anything is what's so impressive about it is there is no bias. It's not only honest and truthful, but it's humble at the feet of that truth. And so that's why I've got Spotlight at number four. For so long, it was in my top ten, and it's not. And I don't know exactly why that is. I need to revisit it. It's one of those that I only got a chance to see once. But I definitely was very moved by it and very, like, all the reasons you said. And specifically, the cast is just outstanding. Everybody knows their role. Nobody's grandstanding, you know. And, you know, I, I was blown away. You know, not only is it nice to see Michael Keaton doing more stuff, and I figured he would after Birdman, but like mm-hmm. he he isn't sort of he is and he isn't sort of the leader of this group. But there's there's so much like nuance in his performance, and then you know everybody from Rachel McAdams to to uh, Mark Ruffalo, you know John and, Slattery, like everybody sort of plays the role the way it needs to be played. Well, and along with uh, Michael Keaton, my other actually favorite performance of that of a impressive ensemble, top to bottom, is Liev Schreiber. Who's yeah. the head editor? And it's what just an interesting so cast decision. I know, and just and it just shows, uh, you know, how vital that editor is. I mean, the editor is like casting this vision of how we need to approach the story, and he in, is in a sense sort of like what Tom McCarthy was as a director, you know, telling his reporters we can't go for the easy bait. There's a bigger picture here that we yeah. kind of have to humble ourselves in front of. Yeah, and if we go for the easy bait, yeah, it might sell some papers in the next couple of weeks, but we can't do that. We've got to play the long game and we've got to kind of be humble before that long yeah. game. And so, uh, so that's a fascinating performance. And, uh, uh, and, and I think it, if you haven't seen it and you do sit down to watch it, the first third of it is, is fairly slow paced and you might be watching it going, is this thing going to pick up? But then when it kind of kicks into its second and then third act, when they start, when they begin to basically uncover some things, it picks up this level of narrative propulsion and emotional thematic weight that really kind of 
kicks it into another gear. And so I would say just be patient with a little bit. It is a little slow and methodical in its setup, but then once it kicks in, it becomes very gripping. Absolutely. Uh, my number four is a, a movie that I'm assuming we're going to talk about here in a minute as well. But it, you know, just in case we're not, I'll, uh, I'm pretty sure we are. Um, my number four is Brooklyn. Step over this way, please. Get out of the line. Next. Passport, please. Welcome to the United States, ma'am. Dear Rose, I miss you and mother and think about you every day. The most important news is that I have a job and I'm in a boarding house. I was glad to see you finally got some letters from home today. I wish that I could stop feeling that I want to be an Irish girl in Ireland. Homesickness is like most sicknesses. It will pass. Would you dance for me? I'm not Irish. So what were you doing at an Irish dance? I really like Irish girls. I met somebody, an Italian fella. We're going to Coney Island at the weekend. But do you have a baby costume? From director John Crawley and screenwriter writer Nick Hornby, uh, another friend of the show. Uh, me and Absolutely. Nick, me and Nick, super close. Um, no, but I genuinely love Nick Hornby. And uh, so, so much has been said about this film already this year. And uh, if you didn't know about it when it came out, like a lot of people didn't, you probably know about it now because of all the, the hubbub about, around it. Uh, I don't really know what I could add to like all the stuff that's being said and all the reviews and all the nominations, except that I love this movie. Um, I love how earnest and sincere it isn't afraid to be. Uh, I love Saoirse Ronan's performance. Uh, maybe my second favorite performance of the year, probably. Um, and how she made this character and her journey immediately real to me. Uh, I was on the verge of tears throughout the entire movie. Um, and I, I didn't even know why. I, I, it's, it's almost as soon as it started. And I think a lot of that ha has to do with the writing, but a lot of it has to do with Saoirse Ronan. Mm -hmm. I immediately was, I wanted this character to be okay. I was invested. And uh, after hearing her in multiple interviews, it's, I think that's just her. Like she mm -hmm. has that quality where I'm like, I feel like this is in parts me, but in parts somebody that I love. She just has that quality about her. Um, you just instantly invest in her as a character and what, what's best for her. And I'm not sure, uh, like I said, if that's Hornby or the director or, or Ronan's maybe a mix Mm -hmm. of all of them. But uh, for those who don't know, um, Brooklyn is a story of uh, Elise Lacey who leaves her mother and sister in Ireland to move to Brooklyn, New York uh, in early 1950s uh, where she knows no one just to sort of get a shot at a new life. And uh, she starts dating a, a young Italian gentleman and they quickly fall in love. But a turn of events back home sort of takes her back to Ireland for a time where she finds herself with another perhaps safer uh, but not worse options romantically. Shout out Donald Gleason. Uh, he's my boy. Mm -hmm. um, he shows up on all of all everything he did this year is on my list, by the way. But uh, Brooklyn is so much more than a, a who will she choose story. Right. Um, and it'd be so easy to tell that romantic tale and be like, I know what this is. It's a Hallmark movie. I get it. Um, it's a story about independence and following your gut and taking chances, uh, many chances um, for the hope of something better than the hand you've been given. And, there isn't sort of a good or bad situation that she has to choose. She just has to follow her heart. And that sounds so cheesy to say out of my mouth even right now, but like I'm getting emotional even thinking about it because I genuinely have such love for this film. But every year a film comes about that either reminds you why you're in love or for the single people in the house uh, makes you want to fall in love. And this year's movie for, for me 
in that way was Brooklyn. And yes, that sounds really hokey and overly sentimental. Uh, but sometimes you need that in a movie and I'm not afraid to say that. So, uh, my number four is Brooklyn. And it's my number three. Yes. Yeah. I love when that works out. Yeah. It, um, no film filled my heart more in 2015. May, I mean, inside outs right there, certainly. Um, but I, I think maybe this surprised me more. And because you look at the previews and the trailers for it, and even though you think, oh, that looks like a good movie, you think, I know what this movie's going to be. Yeah. And in a sense, it is that movie you think it's going to be, but then it ends up being so much more. It's so much richer and deeper than you're expecting. And uh, because on the surface, it it looks like, oh, that looks like a well-crafted chick flick. And I don't even say that in a negative way because I like a lot of chick flicks. Yeah, me too. Um, but but it ends up being so much more richer than that. And uh, and the fact that it's based on a novel, I mean, you get that sense. There is that depth there. And even though uh, you know this doesn't feel too complicated, it, it's such a great adaptation. But yet the core richness of the depth of a novel remains in this story, remains in these characters. As much as they invest in the ancillary characters is very... Like absolutely like absolutely at the, at the dinner table at the i think of those dinner table scenes at mm-hmm. the boarding house she's at are mm-hmm. priceless well and you know that boarding house is a good example but even every element of the film i was going to say this is an immigrant story early 1950s you know irish young woman coming to brooklyn and um but it feels like an immigrant story as if told by jane austen Oh. And so that that boarding room uh, where she's where she's at, you know, those are sort of like the Jane Austen type of sisters. Yeah, you're the right. dynamic between uh, Saoirse Ronan's character and those girls, it's like the sisters in a Jane Austen story. Um, and so you've got that kind of element at play. Yet it's, it, it doesn't feel like it's copying or ripping anything yeah. off. But um, but but at the level that you know Jane Austen stories work for a lot of people, that's really at the level that Brooklyn, I think, is working at a, this very deep emotional level. And even to your point about you know trying to peg you know it, it, the reason you are feeling so much emotion toward this main character is it because of Saoirse Ronan? Is it because of the director? It certainly is the combination of them working together, and it is ultimately Ronan's ability to just. Uh, even in when her character's uh, in, in reserved in a lot of ways, man, you just feel the emotion bubbling underneath. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there are those key moments where the emotion overflows, but it feels not only authentic, but, oh, my gosh, it, it breaks your heart. It doesn't feel melodramatic at all, even at the, uh, at the height of her emotional expression. But it's, it is also the director. I think of a scene early on before she does uh, immigrate to America there's a, a, a dance, uh, you know, community dance scene. And as a friend goes off and gets paired off with a guy that she ends up marrying in the future, um, just the way the director, I think his name is John Crowley. John Crowley, yeah. Um, he stays on Ronan's character almost like longer editorially than he should from a narrative standpoint, but he's staying because something's happening within Saoirse where she's seeing, basically what she's seeing is this friend who's going onto the dance floor with this guy that she ends up marrying is Saoirse's like, and she's not using any words, but her emotion is that's the life I want. And I, I wish I had it here, but I don't. And that's why I'm going to America, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just all there in the close up that just, he holds on that close up. 
and there's no words spoken, but you feel it. And, and so you feel why, even though she's leaving her mother uh, and leaving her sister behind, you feel like, yeah, I understand why she feels she needs to go to America and get a fresh start because the life that all of her friends are having, she's not, it's not there for her. Yeah. She's got to go find it somewhere else. And so the first half hour is just this immigrant story, uh, which is powerful in and of itself and very emotional and moving. Um, and you feel the stakes of this woman, you know, going out into the world, you know, for the first time, you know, uh, no safety net at all. In the 50s when women did not do that. I know. Yeah. I mean, it's just... And so you feel that, and then it becomes this love story, and then it becomes this transatlantic story of just as she's building this, the life that she's been seeking all along in Brooklyn, elements pull her back to Ireland. And, uh, and, and so just this, and so then the stakes of that, of just the, the pull between these two lives that she has um, that are so far apart. Mm -hmm. uh, you just become so invested in where's this going. And then she, the second hour really constructs a scenario where she has to make some hard choices. And so there's a lot of dramatic tension where a you're just lot. thinking, what's she going to choose here? And, uh, and <laughs> there's a lot of anxiety. In fact, there's so much anxiety. I, I saw it again recently with some friends and they were like, oh my gosh, I was, I just, I was, I was too nervous for my own good in that second hour. They just like, I couldn't take it. I yeah. couldn't take it. But they, they were saying they couldn't take it, and it was their way of expressing how much they loved the movie. Yeah. Because if when a movie's working on that level, then then it's working on all cylinders. It is highly as highly effective as a movie it can get. And so, uh, yeah, just it is it is both what you think it's going to be, and then so much more. Than you even anticipate, and and again, it's just it's a, a fulfilling and emotional journey and experience, uh, rooted in Saoirse Ronan's central performance, but then all of the particulars surrounding it. Uh, it's I mean it's my number three, and it, and uh, it might be my quote unquote favorite film of 2015, just because of how fulfilling it was. Yeah, absolutely, and a total surprise because I did sort of brace myself for the sort of classic chick flick or whatever and then right. when it be, when it had so much more depth i was just just bursting with mm -hmm. like oh this is what this is gonna be you know mm -hmm. and so much oh. as it does ride on ronan's performance and then uh, uh i was talking about carol before just visually it's yeah. so lush yeah. Yeah. i mean costumes art direction cinematography it's so beautiful it's these very kind of colorful pastel palette um, it's so much precise detail, just beautifully rendered. So it's just, it, it, it's a joy to watch and just, you know, see. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, the, it's this beautiful portrait of a beautifully told story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my number three is a movie that we've talked about on and off the air today. It's Inside Out. So, Riley, how was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. <laughs> you guys pick up on that? Sure oh, did. Well. Something's wrong. Signal the husband. <clears throat> Uh-oh. She's looking at us. What did she say? Oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What is it, woman? What? I'm joy. This is sadness. That's anger. What? This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. <laughs> We're Riley's emotions. These are Riley's memories. They're mostly happy, you'll notice, not to brag. I wanted to maybe hold one. What happened? Sad 
madness? She did something to the memory. Is everything okay? I don't know. Take it back, Joy. Joy, Joy, no. Let's wait. Go. The core memories. Ah! No, 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 no. Can I say that curse word now? I don't really know what else I could say about it that we haven't already touched on. But um, I, I, it is almost like Pixar said, let's make the best movie we've ever made and uh, got to work. Um, originally sparked by writer Pete Doctors uh, and director Pete Doctors attempt to understand what his 11 year old daughter was going through as she approached pre-teenagehood. Um, Inside Out avoids a lot of the cliched visuals and storytelling beats that, you know, make even the best Pixar movies uh, sometimes a little bit cliched. But a lot of movies uh, by Pixar's competitors, too, I feel like they've just set a whole new bar now. Like sort of what you said about Star Wars, where now we're just like, okay, now we have Inside Out, so right. we get to work, which makes me very excited. Um, the best parts of this movie feel truly new, um, even as they channel previously animated classics and explore situations and feelings that everyone has experienced to some degree. And I honestly, like you said, didn't know how they were going to pull it off and was blown away by the end result. And it's a movie that I, I feel like I'll watch for the rest of my life. Like it really just mm-hmm. does feel um, so true and, and real which is sort of ironic because it's an animated film. <laughs> so, right. but which same thing with Anomalisa, like sometimes you have to sort of, you know, explore that surreal, just really get uh, to the heart of reality. So yeah, that's what I feel like I've spoken all day about inside out, but that's, yeah, it had to be number three. Well, out. and one of the things that we went into during our break when we were talking about it more again, this really stuck out to me the second time I watched it is, you know, sort of in the middle part of the film, you've got joy and sadness, you know, traveling through the different parts of the brain, right? And uh, narratively, and in, in as a construct, there's sort of action sequences or different types of sequences that happen through the course of that. And they're very inventive, very clever, very ingeniously done. But what really stood out to me the second time is when I, you know, could now see it for what it was. And it's like, oh my gosh, everything that's happening from sort of an exciting action standpoint has major emotional implications to this girl. Yes. And the the emotional weight of whenever these quote-unquote action scenes were happening really resonated to me that second time. And so it just, uh, even during like exciting parts, I was also <laughs> feeling this deep well of emotion in the midst of it, which is very rare for yeah. quote unquote action sequences. Right. So um, the fact that it was working on both of those levels simultaneously just speaks to the level of depth and insight that the film is really, uh, its ambition is reaching for and actually achieving. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Like, and I, One thing that we haven't really spoken on, but um, and I don't really, I think a lot of people that have seen this movie, I don't really know how much there is to spoil, but there's a character called Bing Bong um, mm-hmm. that, played by that voiced by Richard kind that is one of my favorite performances of the year mm-hmm. uh, a, already a phenomenal character actor and anything that he shows up and I get excited because he is so specific and wonderful and quirky but uh he did such a phenomenal job uh, and then uh, I mean everybody voiced across the board was was the right choice mm-hmm. and I love that that Pixar continues to use comedians and continues to use sort of people that we aren't expected to see. Uh, you know, everybody from Amy Poehler, this sort of sketch comedy world, Amy Poehler, Bill Hader, uh, Louis Black, Mindy Kaling, and uh, Phyllis from The Office. Uh, like, it's amazing because I think that there's, comedy is so hard that the, and there's such a dramatic element to comedy that's sort of underlying that makes me excited to see that these these voices um, or these these actors are being used in such a, such a specific and wonderful way. Mm-hmm. So, 
Well, and before we get into our top two choices, this would be the perfect time for a music break because the next music selection I have queued up is from the score of Inside Out. Perfect. Uh, Michael Guccino, who um, his one Academy Award was uh, he won was for scoring the film Up, uh, Pete Doctor's last movie. And uh, surprisingly, this score was not nominated. Really? Uh, which is, uh, it, it's sort of astonishing on a couple of levels. One, it seems like whenever Pixar, you know, has a movie, their, their score is going to be nominated, you know, more times than not. And then Michael Guccino's just proven to be sort of an Academy favorite. So when his name didn't make that final cut of five movies, it was very surprising, particularly because this really is some of Guccino's best work. Yeah. Uh, not only in this main joy theme that you'll hear, but even in the more emotional elements. <laughs> I was listening to the score again recently, and it was just like... Oh, that's exactly like the feeling that I had when Jack and Kate were yes. <laughs> having deep, you know, emotional uh, moments in the series Lost, which Gacino also scored. And that same level of deep emotion in those most emotional scenes, he's doing some of his best work there as well. So, but this is the main joy theme from Inside Out. I love that that score as well, and I did not know that it wasn't nominated. But Michael Cuccino, basically, if he has scored a movie, I buy the soundtrack, whether I've seen the movie or not, because I just I enjoy, you know, just like an, an artist, you know, a singer songwriter, whatever. They, he has a style, mm -hmm. and he plays around it. And definitely, every every film that he scores or television show is a little bit different. But you can hear elements of it, like you said, there mm -hmm. are elements of the lost score and that. And I love hearing that. You're like, oh, there he is. You know, it's sort of like you know, experiencing or like. Uh, seeing something, f uh, a familiar face in the crowd, like, oh, there it is. There's He has that turnaround or whatever from a musical standpoint. It's definitely... And then uh, just the range, like we were talking about with Howard Shore from Spotlight to Lord of the Rings. Similarly with Cuccino, I mean, you've got uh, sort of what you predominantly expect from him, Lost, Alias, uh, sort of, you know, uh, he scored Jurassic World. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, those kinds of scores, uh, the Star Trek movies for J.J. Abrams, but then this score for Inside Out. Very different stylistically, uh, working with different types of instrumentation, composition, mood, all that sort of stuff. And yet it's just perfectly done, yeah. which, again, was just uh, emphasized the disappointment that he wasn't nominated because it's it's uh, uh, a lot of it is actually very different from a lot of what he's done in the past. And yet it's so well done. Um, anyway, he's, he's a phenomenal composer. Yeah, absolutely. Um Wait, what was that? Your number two? Number uh, or have you, no? So uh, these are the last. Yeah, number two? three was Brooklyn. So okay. now we're going into number two, uh, and for me, the, the number two, number one was uh, real. Just flip a coin at this point. Yeah, uh, number two is Room, uh, and it, if you're familiar with it, you know I have to say the commercials and the promos for this film reveal a lot more than I wish they would. Yeah, uh, I had the good fortune of seeing it. Man, it's back in September before I really knew, I just knew the premise and that was it. And the premise is basically the film opens 
uh, on this young woman who's in her seventh year of captivity in this one room shed. She was kidnapped seven years prior um, as a, when she was a teenager by some, you know, guy kidnapped her, put her, has been holding her captive for seven years. And we see her with her five-year-old son that she is born by virtue of the sexual assaults that her captor has borne out on her over all these years. And so the premise is basically this kidnapped captive woman raising the son she born of her captor and that life. And it's just all in this room, right? And, uh, and so that, that's all I'll say about it narratively. Obviously, that's extremely heavy subject matter, and it is as heavy as you would expect. But the one, I know a lot of people just hear that premise and they're like, oh, I can't watch that. There's just no way. Right. Um, what is interesting is at the Toronto Film Festival this past year, it actually won the Audience Award. And normally the Audience Award goes to these, you know, more uplifting films like The Artist, Slumdog Millionaire, things like that, Right. And so the fact that this one audience award, uh, that in and of itself, if you're skeptical about entering into this experience, yes, as I said before, it is as heavy as you think it's going to be, but it's also as life affirming and just, uh, it's, it's worth the journey. I think that's the best way to put it. It's, it's worthwhile for as heavy as it is. And, um, in, in a sentence, I would say room is an emotional gauntlet. It just takes you through the gauntlet of emotion. Mm. Seeing what uh, Brie Larson, uh, who's only referred to as Ma, um, what she has to do as a parent to this young five-year-old boy uh, portrayed phenomenally by Jacob Tremblay. Yeah. I mean, it's just like he's so natural and so spontaneous. Uh, there, there, isn't, uh, there, there isn't an ounce of actor in him. It's, it's just amazing. And so their dynamic and her struggle as a mother to parent this child under these circumstances. Uh, and uh, the only thing I'll add to the premise is ultimately it, it, the arc of it is she's trying to find a way because he's beginning to get older now. And, uh, and it's hard to explain away their condition, their living condition, because that's all he's ever known. And she's trying to inform him about the real world. The, the drive of the story is she's trying to find a way to at least get him free, even if she can't break free. How, how does she get him out of this confinement? And so that becomes sort of the driving part of the narrative. And just how that narrative unfolds is it's gut-wrenching, it's emotionally turbulent. Um, and then also we just see uh, the ongoing psychological trauma of this kind of thing. That's the other major aspect of this whole story is the psychological trauma that she has to learn how to live with, but then also try to overcome. Um, it, just, it seems like most everything what I'm saying sounds like a deterrent. I know, I know. <laughs> from watching this movie, but obviously it's at number two, very, de uh, not only deserving Best Picture nominee, but a surprise uh, director nomination. I say surprise not because it's not earned, but again, it, 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 sort of like we were talking about with End of the Tour, and even Spotlight, on the surface, it looks so simple compared to something like Mad Max Fury Road right. uh, or The Revenant or something. Um, and yet it's so uh, it's such a testament to the direction that it, this is as emotionally involving as it is, even within uh, the most confining context physically. Uh, so 
it's just, it, it's so powerfully wrought. Uh, it's right, like I said, it's an emotional gauntlet, but it's a gauntlet worth enduring and going through. It's worthwhile right. to go on this journey. And uh, Brie Larson is going to win the Best Actress Academy Award, barring some major upset. Uh, the only upset I would be pleased with would be Saoirse Ronan for the reasons we said earlier. Right. But I'm going to be very excited when Brie Larson wins this because uh, maybe the most emotionally intense film prior to this that I'd seen was Short Term 12. With Brie Larson. With Brie Larson, which you can see now on Netflix. Yeah. Um, in fact, if you haven't seen Room, see Short Term 12 first just as a sort of a, a template for what she's capable of, and then she mm. fulfills that promise here in Room. So that, that's my number two. Well, my number two is also Room. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, you basically said everything that I was going to say. I, I, I love that sort of what you were saying about Spotlight. You could easily tell this story by showing the worst parts of it. Yeah, it's never salacious. So gratuitous. Yeah. So, and they don't. Never because, goes there. Because our entry point into this movie is the child. Mm-hmm. We, we are, we are the, our narrator, our entry point, like I said, it, it's Jacob Tremblay as Jack, the, the five-year-old. And so he is shielded from most, like a good mother would, she shields him from most of the bad parts, if not all of them, of this life. And so we don't see it. We don't, it is implied and it is very implied into the point where like, you know what's happening. And, and I'm so glad you made that point because when people hear this, even if they don't think it through specifically in their head, I think instinctively they think, oh, that probably means I'm going to see this, yeah. I'm going to see X, Y, and Z, and I do not want to see that. Thankfully, we don't see it either, but we, it's implied enough yeah. to where we, we feel the power uh, and the darkness of that, but we don't have to endure that no, business. No, yeah. and and it's a brilliant choice too because at, we have seen enough as audiences, and Absolutely. this filmmaker knows it, and he knows that there are subtle ways you can be like, oh, this is happening now. He doesn't talk down to the audience at all, um, even though you totally could because, and rightfully so, because we are essentially seeing the world through the eyes of a five-year-old who and five-year-olds get talked down to a lot. So mm-hmm. I love that that choice is made um, because, yeah, like I said, it could have been the most just gross and gratuitous and like, okay, like I don't need to, we, we understand what's happening. And um, emotions don't lie. And almost entirely throughout this film, I was emotionally invested. And once again, on the verge of tears, um, if not full-on letting them flow. Uh, I mean, my heart was just pounding goodness. through my chest at times. It honestly might be one of the best movies I've ever seen. I was like that movie going experience was so I was just right there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I don't think a day has gone by in the, in the last month or so since I've seen it that I haven't thought about it. Um, but room is essentially these two characters, mother and son, Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay uh, together in a room for most of it. And you get to see this experience, like I said, through five year old Jack. But uh, it's 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 so interesting to me now in the award circuit, how he is not getting more, I know. more play. And, and, and I love that he, what did he, he won the SAG award. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was like? And he had one of the best speeches of the, of the award season. Um, but it also just shows, yeah, he's not like an actor kid. He's not putting anything on. Like he is the genuine article and it really shows in his performance. And I love the relationship now that Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, she so clearly still takes care of him <laughs> right. in, in these weird, odd situations that you have to go through is going through these red carpets and stuff. And like, it just made, it just, we talked about Brie Larson before we started, but like her as an actor and as what I can tell through interviews as a person, like it absolutely makes sense why she is as good as she is. And this movie is probably the best that she's ever been. And, uh, I'm so glad that she's getting all, all of the accolades that, that she truly deserves. And I really think that like we have the makings of like a true, not movie star, but like one of the great, 
actors of our generation right now. Well, and I think she actually uh, fulfills the accolades that are more often heaped upon Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, mm. I, I think Jennifer Lawrence is a very good actress. She's fine, yeah. But I, uh, I think she's a little overpraised. I, you know, her best work is still Winter's Bone, which is sort of her major yeah. film debut. And um, but other than that, I've, I've just se- I've seen her acting more. It's never felt fully authentic. It felt, it's felt often more like a persona that she's doing well. And here, uh, as with Short Term 12, but then even more so here in Room, Brie Larson really is that just phenomenal young actress who is spontaneous in the moment, completely absorbed into this character, into this person, becomes this person at a very deep primal level. And um, and even like you're saying, you, I mean, you, you see this connection on the red carpet between her and Tremblay because it was that real for them on the set. Mm-hmm. And it... it they created a bond that still exists and still lives and it's still vibrant. And, uh, so yeah, it's just, um, I can't, you know, I can't recommend this movie enough. Uh, it, um, yeah, it's worthwhile. It's Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are down to our number ones. Um, are we, do we have another, um, we can, are we going to end it with it? Uh, let's, uh, let's wait for the, final music score uh, piece yeah. uh, to segue between our top tens and honorable mentions and Got it. other stuff. Um, so Jeff, what is your number one movie of 2015? It's one that you talked about earlier, The Revenant. Uh, it really is, you know, it's his follow, uh, Inuritu's follow-up to Birdman. And when he, you know, won Best Director and Best Picture last year for Birdman, yeah, it was, you know, to me it was its own little work of genius and, you know, very deserving. A year later, I think he's stopped, he's topped it, uh, be, just because for as ingenious and bold as Birdman was, the scope of this thing is just so much bigger, and the fact that he actually pulled it off and did it again without the air of pretense that is common to most of his filmography is pretty amazing, and. Um, it, it, it's a rare special achievement, particularly just the fact that it is on the level of scope that it is. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, you, you hinted at and even talked about some of those, you know, real life struggles that they had even making the thing. Mm-hmm. And I know some people have even, I, I think, have been a little holier than thou and saying, I'm not going to be fooled just because Leo ate real raw bison <laughs> meat. You know, I'm not going to praised the movie just because he did that or just because they were out in the freezing cold for days on end and whatnot and all that and stuff. And it's like, no, you shouldn't praise a film just because it was a grueling experience. But then it actually translates. That's why it deserves the praise is because what, uh, for as as much they invested into it, it translates into the experience of the story and and what we're seeing on screen. Uh, It's about as... Uh, as brutal of an experience of two and a half hours as you could probably imagine a movie-going experience could be, Uh, even though it starts off sort of very Terrence Malick-like in this very contemplative, ethereal atmosphere, it isn't too long before we're thrust into this super dynamic, single-take, you know, 
shot of these warring Native Americans attacking uh, this group of fur trappers. And it's basically this, you know, frontier war battle scene very, uh, that's very, very gritty and bloody. And again, it's this one swirling camera take. And so just the choreography, just from a cinematic standpoint, it's impressive. And then just from a visceral standpoint, it's also uh, very impressive. And then what I liked about this most, and I think you might have been talking about this a little bit too, is the reason it's at my number one is because even though it is just this spectacular experience of something that's this grueling endurance test physically for this character, ultimately what it's doing is it's mirroring, mirroring his spiritual journey. This character is on a spiritual journey because, uh, because of how certain events happen, uh, it becomes this pursuit of revenge. Basically, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is on a pursuit of revenge uh, against Tom Hardy's character. And that's sort of the, the bulk of the arc of the film. And, uh, and so because he's on this uh, just single-focused pursuit of enacting revenge on this guy, there's a spiritual struggle. And so it, it's basically, the film is, uh, it's this descent into hell. Uh, spiritually speaking, mm. uh, not physically speaking, of course, although it's, it's, it's an <laughs> earthly hell, basically. Yeah. Um, but, it's, it, but it's his own descent into hell, into, into anger, fear, aggression, the dark side, are they, are driving this guy. You know, it, it's, it's the only reason he's living at this point. And, um, and so, uh, so the spiritual journey that he takes with that struggle uh, ends up being very powerful. And so for me, the fact that it, was, it wasn't just this phenomenal, epic scope of filmmaking, although that in and of itself could make it the best film of the year. Um, and it wasn't just about this uh, powerfully rendered tale of physical endurance under the most extreme circumstances, but the fact that it was all uh, mirroring this deeper subtext of a spiritual journey and a spiritual path. Um, I mean, it is this descent into hell and, and resurrection, but like 98% of it is the descent into hell, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, DiCaprio, he's a guy who's, uh, who's historically been hit or missed for me. And what I love about this performance is, in one sense, it's classic Leo in that he's just giving like 200%, you know, like he always does. But then... Uh, in part because of things that happen to his character, but also just choices he's making as an actor, there's a lot more nuance and subtlety and quiet. And so we see the full range of him as an actor. And so the fact that this is sort of uh, unfolding to be his year to finally win an Academy Award, mm -hmm. it's a very good role for him yes. to win an Oscar for because we are seeing uh, a lot of uh, his other performances are just that 200% level the whole movie. And it's good, but we don't see the range. Right. And in fact, and that's been some of the knock on DiCaprio is, does he have range? Mm -hmm. And we see that here. Uh, we see the full range of his capabilities as an actor through the course of this. Um, and again, it's just, because it is ultimately a spiritual journey, it's so deeply felt. And so, and in terms of that spiritual journey, it really is the reason the film goes to such torturous lengths of creating a grueling experience is because thematically it's saying, if this is how far uh, the depths of revenge can go, does does mercy go that far too? Mm. Um, and does it even can mercy even go farther than that? 
And so to me, that's why it resonated is, um, is mercy possible uh, in a world this dark, this corrupt, this violent, this brutal, this primal? Um, and so, yeah, just a very powerful story. Not to mention, I'll actually, I know you were mixed on Tom Hardy. Oh, my goodness. I think he's phenomenal. In really? fact, I want Stallone to win the Oscar, but if he wasn't up, I would want Hardy to win it. Um, Hardy's just such a chameleon. Yeah, that's I true. I mean, if you only saw one of his performances, you would never guess he was capable of so many of the other kinds of performances. And this is just another great example of that. Is just, you know, I would never guess that he's a Brit or an Aussie or whatever he yeah. is based on this performance. Um, for me, I guess either... I didn't find his accent to be as inconsistent as you did, or maybe I was just thinking uh, subconsciously, oh, it's early America. So, That's you know, true. our dialects weren't as too. fully developed maybe at that time as they are saying now. That's very true, yeah. You know, so it, it, it just felt very real. And, and then he's just this sort of evil incarnate, basically, as a character. No joke. So, um, so he's just fascinating to watch. Uh, but yet he's not a caricature. So, um, yeah, just everything. And then just, again, Inuri too, um, man, I'm just, I'm just so excited to see where he's at as a filmmaker right now. Again, because I think he's, he's doing his best work as a craftsman, but then also doing his best work as a storyteller. Right. And I, I think he's just becoming a more humble filmmaker than he used to be. And, uh, and, and that's just giving us films that resonate all the more powerfully. So, that's why I've got The Revenant at number one. And I love that it, it's become as successful as it has in the box. I, know. I never would have guessed. Talk about Steve Jobs. Like, I would have put my money on that at the beginning of the year as being mm-hmm. the, having the kind of Revenant success that, right. That right now. But it is interesting how so many people are just flocking to the theaters you know, to see it in its what doubled projections as far as what it was going to make. Well, that was one of the big questions was, so you know, whenever you've got a, a movie with a budget as big as this had, which was $135 million, and it's as brutal as it is. You think, man, I just don't. You know, Inuritu's films have never been audience friendly ever, and now um, this didn't seem to be either. And yet they spent so much money on it. It's probably is this just going to bomb financially for the mm. studio? And just the converse has ha- you know been true. I mean, people have been going. I don't know. If flockings might be a little. Uh, uh, too big of a term, but I mean, it's hugely successful, right. way beyond what you'd expect uh, for this kind of film to be, which I think speaks to DiCaprio's draw. Um, but also at this point, it's also word of mouth. I mean, people are yeah. saying, yeah, it's a grueling journey, but it's worthwhile yes. um, uh, from an experiential level to just a cinematic level. It's mm. worth seeing on the big screen, go to the theater yeah. to see it. Had to. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it works and it, it's, it's exciting to see audiences respond to a film that works at this level in the yeah. way that it does, even though it's requiring so much of the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's requiring a lot of its characters. It's equally requiring a lot of its viewers, you know, um, but viewers are responding. So that's exciting. Well, my number one is not a surprise to anybody that knows me, but, um, and I've kind of went back and forth between like, do I go with my like affection that is factored in or I do, do I go with like my, you know, my thoughtful brain where I'm like, well, what's the best movie? And mm-hmm. I, I'm always going to go with my heart if I have to. And that's why num- my number one is Star Wars The Force Awakens. Absolutely. It has to be, Jeff. It has to be. I applaud your choice. I couldn't. It's the only movie that I was so hyped up about that it actually exceeded those expectations to the point where I had I went back and saw it four times 
uh, and I saw them the, both times coupled in the same weekend. So Friday and Sunday, I saw both times. And, I, and it was just as good, if not better, every time. And it's not just because I'm a huge Star Wars fan, which I am, but uh, let's go back a little bit. Star Wars The Force Awakens, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, was the film that J.J. Abrams was born to make. He was put on Earth here so we could have this. <laughs> so we could have our childhood back. Exactly. Thank you, J.J. <laughs> and uh, it's set 30 years after the events of Return of the Jedi. Everybody knows this for the most part. But if, for the one guy who hasn't heard of this Star War, um, Force Awakens, is, it's funny. It's touching. It's surprisingly light-footed. It boasts a lot of familiar elements, like you were saying, including the Skywalker family mythology, another Death Star-type weapon, uh, as well as self-aware lines about how things work in this series, which, like you said, it needs to be that this is sort of the, the precedent that was put forward. And I think if it wasn't there, we would be a little bit like, it wouldn't feel exactly right. I think the people who complain about it being too much like A New Hope, I think if there weren't certain winks or elements of that in there, it would be, if, it would be like... It feel a little bit maybe too foreign. I'm not sure. Yeah, the haters are saying say? the haters are saying it's lazy fan service. Right. But if you actually look at what Lucas created, Abrams is being true. Not only is he being true to what uh, he's inherited. Yeah. But if he didn't do what he did, he wouldn't. He, he'd be. Uh, uh, he, he'd be rejecting the mythology. He'd be rejecting yes. what Lucas created. He'd be he and doing it improperly. And so I just think, I think he was the perfect guy to uh, continue this, again, not only continue this saga, but to expand it. Expand it. it. And, and I love that we are at the point, and maybe this has always happened, but it's so, um, it's so apparent now that we are at the point where uh, fans are being put in charge of the things that we love, you know? And I feel like this is the best result of that because he truly, J.J. Abrams loves Star Wars and it's so apparent and the that's the one thing I can, I can, if I only had one thing to say about it is that he takes such care of this mm -hmm. and he clearly loves it as much as we do. And he said that multiple times during the making, like, I am not going to screw this up on purpose. Like, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's such an exhilarating ride filled with these archetypal characters with plausible, like psychologies and melodramatic co confrontations fueled by these emotions and performances that can be described as good period instead of good for Star Wars, which I feel like I heard a lot about before this. Namely, Daisy Ridley as Rey, John Boyega as Finn, Oscar Isaac as Poe Dameron, and my boy Donald Gleason as General Hux. I'm still going to give him a shout out. Word. They're so, these are so good. Exactly what you said. Before we even see a familiar face, I'm in it. We're sold. I'm sold. And all in all, I love Star Wars because... Yes, it's a part of my fabric of my upbringing. When I was a kid, it was my first experience into real-world fantastical storytelling. This was meaning like not these were actors, you know, it was stories portrayed by real-life actors and not animated people or animated characters, which just blew my brain wide open when I was five. And, and this film brought back all those feelings of being five or six and sitting in the floor at my parents' house watching these stories play out and my universe expanding of what was possible. And these these amazing, you know, stories, yes, they're fantastical because they take place in, in space and, and all these unique and wonderful characters and, and worlds. But the the storytelling is so pure and rich and true to life to the things and rich in metaphor to the things that that the human experience is basically about. And uh, now JJ has brought those feelings back in tenfold <laughs> and uh, is built on it tremendously and hopefully has set us up for more pure awesomeness in the years to come, I have no doubt. And for that, it just had to be nothing else but my number one, the Star Wars The Force Awakens. Well, again, I, you know, I certainly not only fault you, but I actually <laughs> really like that you have it there because 
um, again, despite, how, I mean, the phenomenal, it's about to cross $900 million domestic. Wow. Uh, which is truly mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Despite all that success, I still think it's a little bit undervalued and underappreciated. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because, again, it's just like, man, particularly based on our experience with the prequels, it's so easy to mess this thing up. And so what Abrams achieved uh, is to be applauded and to be valued and not to be undersold or cut short or just like, well, oh, it's Star Wars, obviously. I mean, how can you miss with Star Wars? Well, we saw three versions of that. And so, um, so to me, the fact that he did this and he did it as well as he did in a way that, I mean, you just, you feel the rush of excitement. I mean, it's just so thoroughly entertaining from start to finish, not to mention just how well he does, you know, works all the mythology. I mean, like you're saying, there's humor in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the character and the relationships are just so rich. Uh, there are wings to the preview, the, the first trilogy without it being like just oh we get it we're watching a Star Wars movie there's there's almost throwaway lines that you're that if you're really paying attention and you're a true fan you get such a charge out of yeah which is they're handed so delicately it could there's no wink it's to perfectly camera. done yes just the way they're yeah it's without a wink and if you miss it you didn't miss yeah. anything but if you got it it just makes it that much richer and it's so obvious but like I I am so whenever I think about the Force Awakens I get excited to think about like I'm so excited to of the story of Finn mm -hmm. alone apart right. from Ray. I'm so excited about all these characters, but like the fact that we, we were sort of di diving deeper into like, where are these stormtroopers coming from? They're taken from their families and raised and brainwashed. And like, and now we have this character who sees he's not a part of the dark side or the rebellion. He is literally, he's just another thing that we didn't really get to see before. You know, we mm -hmm. have all these characters that were bouncing around in the other ones that, they're probably just living their lives and stuff, but like Han Solo, I guess, but he eventually becomes a part of the rebellion. And now we have, we, I feel like it, it's just ripe with like, if we get his backstory or whatever happens in the next few movies, I'm just so excited to be like, Oh, we've never done that before. And so, even though we have to wait six more months than we originally planned for episode eight, fine. it's totally fine. Totally you fine. know, it's just like, man, if you need that extra six months to get it right, then, uh, I mean, because that's what they did here. This was yeah. originally supposed to open in the summer. They had to delay it because they wanted to make sure they got it right. And so it's just like, man, do what you got to do. Especially, you know, we have a new director at the helm, Ryan mm -hmm. Johnson. And so if he needs to take it, take it. because. And I fully trust Ryan Johnson and his ability to do, you know, not the same thing that JJ did, but by you know JJ's hand still in it. But I I, I have complete faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so it's exciting to see where this is gonna go. And uh, yeah, I, I applaud your number one choice. <laughs> well, thanks, Jeff. Um, uh, so I guess maybe just to recap again, I'll go through my ten to one, and then you can go through yours. Sure. Uh, at number ten, I had Creed. Number nine, Mad Max Fury Road. Number eight, Inside Out, although at this point it should be higher. Uh, number seven, Steve Jobs. Number six, Star Wars The Force Awakens. And then my top five. Number five, I have Carol. Number four, Spotlight. Number three, Brooklyn. Number two, Room. And number one, The Revenant. And in my number 10, I have Ex Machina. Number nine, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Number eight is Dope. Uh, and it's also called dope uh <laughs> number seven is the revenant number six charlie kaufman's anomalisa uh number five into the tour four is brooklyn three inside out two is room and number one is mordecai oh no uh star wars force awakens sorry forgot i, I took that off the list uh, honorable mention he, he's just so zany yeah 
<laughs> well, um, and speaking of our honorable mention, uh, to segue from our top 10 list to those honorable mentions, uh, I will uh, take the main theme from The Revenant, composed by, I'm gonna, probably going to butcher this, but it, <laughs> uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto. There you go. I believe I got that right. Um, and, and as you'll hear in this music, again, it's just another great example of music completely embodying sort of the... Uh, the depth and the complexity and the richness uh, that is this particular film. Unfortunately, again, not nominated for an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand the reasons, but for some reason it was uh, ineligible. I have no idea why. There's got to be some really arcane rules to why. I mean, this is all original composition. It wasn't like they took music from other things or other works. I have no idea why it was ineligible, but it was. That's really um, But anyway, it's, it's some of the best uh, film scoring of 2015 uh, from The Revenant. Jeff, do you want to get into some honorable mentions really quick? Just yeah. run down some that, you know, were good enough to definitely get get the spotlight shown on them. Uh, yeah, I'll go through 11 through 20 uh, okay. real quickly here. At number 11, right outside my top 10, I had Sicario, which mm-hmm. is That's a film uh, about uh, the drug war right there on the border uh, with America and Mexico, starring Emily Blunt. Uh, Josh Brolin, uh, Benicio del Toro, really a great return to form. Uh, the best nutshell I can say is it feels like the best Michael Mann films from the 90s, Heat, uh, things like that, yeah. uh, Collateral. This is very much in that vein in terms of craftsmanship and intensity. And the director, Denise uh, Villeneuve, I might be getting that wrong, is actually in charge of the Blade Runner reboot. Oh. So based on Sicario, I'm very excited about that. Uh, number 12, I had Ex Machina, which we talked about. Uh, number 13, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Uh, in a year where there was also a James Bond movie, and I actually liked the James Bond movie a lot. People were divided on Spectre. Uh, Mission Impossible still topped it. Uh, just super thrilling uh, spy action genre movie at its best. Number 14, The Walk. Uh, Robert Zemeckis movie based on that real life story about the guy who actually did a tightrope walk between the two twin towers uh, just as they were being built. Uh, Number 15, a film called Youth, uh, an Italian film starring Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel uh, with a really splashy one scene with Jane Fonda. The ultimate artsy fartsy kind of movie that I think people would just think, you know, the American sensibility would kind of balk at its European artsiness, but for me, it really worked. Uh, very sophisticated uh, filmmaking there. Um, 16, 45 years. This oh. is uh, a small independent film about uh, a marriage at the 45 year mark that has been very successful, but then an unexpected element comes into play that causes a break of trust. And particularly, uh, it's the, the struggle and the journey throughout the film about the break of trust is 
uh, centers on the wife because she feels like there's a break of trust that the husband has because of something that the husband has sort of hidden from her. Um, and, and so it just, it, it's a very, not only is it a very powerful journey and exploration of a marriage in crisis, even that late into a marriage, uh, but then even down to the final moments and even the final shot, it's just devastating, but a worthwhile journey for as intense as it is. As it is. Number 17, The Martian. I think, yeah, we all know what that is. And it's, you know, not only is it a fun, hugely entertaining movie, but man, uh, and not only is it, you know, just great about how smart it's playing with science and all that sort of thing and using science throughout it, but then just the emotional payoff uh, of that climactic scene. It's working on all levels, cinematically, technically, special effects, and emotionally. Uh, number 18, Bridge of Spies, I think an underrated Spielberg film. Another one of those films that was even better the second time that I saw it. I expected uh, that to be higher on your list. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's a, um, it is in a sense still minor Spielberg compared to his best films. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Spielberg is one of those guys that really has rarely made a bad movie. Most of his films are very good to great. This is a sure. very good film. Yeah. Um, that's also uh, maybe his most old-fashioned, but old-fashioned in the best way. Uh, number 19, I have Joy from David O. Russell, a guy that actually I think his recent films uh, like uh, American Hustle, Silver Linings Playbook, um, while good, have been a little overrated. This has actually been my favorite of his recent films, really? and I was disappointed to see that it wasn't as embraced as some of his uh, recent work. And uh, it's really, it's Jennifer Lawrence's best performance since Winter's Bone. And so uh, I, I really see her going beyond that general, you know, kind of strong persona that she, uh, you know, a lot of her characters are. And there's a lot more depth and vulnerability within this character. And it's just this invigorating journey of this self-made woman trying to fulfill her entrepreneurial dream and the yeah. high stakes of that. And so it's very riveting. That's number 19. And then at number 20, actually, I, I cheated and have a, had a tie between the end of the tour and the big short. Ah. Um, yeah, of course, the big short's very sort of a big Oscar player right now. It's there in the mix for best picture uh, about the uh, economic crash, the housing bubble in 2008. And uh, I, it's a little bit of a mess directorially in my, in my viewpoint. But it so brilliantly communicates such a complex subject uh, and does it actually in an entertaining way, but also in a way that rightfully infuriates you. So, so yeah, I've got The Big Short there at number 20 along with the end of the tour. I definitely like The Big Short, but it was one of those that when it was done, I was sort of like, I can't imagine revisiting this necessarily. I was just right. sort of like, okay, I got all the information that I sort of was missing about this mm-hmm. subject and I'm good. And yep. um, although it was, you know, very entertaining and all the, I think all the actor nomination and accolades are, are definitely warranted, but it was one of those where every time it keeps getting more and more, you know, speed up to speed more than, mm-hmm. you know, or it gets more accolade than others that I felt like you're more deserving. Like, really? All right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, it definitely is. A, it's impressive to watch Adam McKay, who is mostly known for comedies, if only known for comedies like Anchorman and Talladega mm-hmm. Nights. Right. To see him step up like this. As much as I agree, it is kind of a mess in parts. I, I was really happy to see it. I like being. He wrote the screenplay too, or co-wrote oh, really? it. Okay. So that, I mean, to me, that's really the strength is yeah. how it's structured from a from a script standpoint, and uh, and and it's 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 well directed. Certainly, it's certainly again, it's a step up from what he's done in the past. But uh, his the best achievement, McKay gets right here is that script and how yeah. it's told. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just add to that, um, as a 21 sure. uh, or 22, I guess, uh, Cinderella, 
I, I just I want to give props to that movie. Huh. Um, did you see it? No. Oh my goodness! I it, heard that it was great. Sort of, kind of what we were talking about with Brooklyn. It's exactly what you expect, but then it's actually more than what you expect. And it, it its thematic richness is so beautiful and so moving. And so, I mean, particularly for parents who are like anti-Disney princess because they've got a problem with it or whatever, and they don't want their girls to aspire to the simplicity sure. of the princess, you know, kind of icon. Um, this sort of answers or addresses that concern in a way that doesn't undercut the sort of the, the the princess image, but empowers it and strengthens it with grace and dignity mm. in a, in a in a way that you want both boys and girls to aspire to, okay. and a level of generosity of spirit. And so, um, yeah. So Cinderella was one of those uh, big surprises for me in 2015 yeah. that uh, I think um, is a little undervalued, just because people think, oh, it's just going to be this or that, and it ends up being a lot more. Um, a few of mine that are in, uh, these aren't in any specific order as far as. Uh, the bottom half of my top 20, but um, a few we talked about, Spotlight, um, I recommend Steve Jobs, Sicario, uh, Creed, The Martian, um, all things you mentioned, all uh, well worth people's time. A few that I, I wanted to sort of um, highlight, I guess, just because I really enjoy them and didn't really hear much else about it, um, is, uh, I guess I, I guess this isn't a good example of that, but Love and Mercy, mm -hmm. uh, which is the Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. Very good. Sort of split biopic. Um, I was sort of, I'm a little bit averse to musical biopics. Like they, they, they're they very hit and miss with me, mainly because I am a musician and it really bothers me to see people to try try to portray them on, on screen because they rarely get it right. But um, they're... There's both Cusack and Paul Dano who who play Brian Wilson past and present or past and somewhat present mm -hmm. um, do such an exceptional job uh, that the, and especially Paul Dano I was very impressed with sort of his depth and range because usually he's such a sort of petty and whiny character I feel like he plays that a lot like and we sort of get to see um, we get to see like his true range as as a three dimensional character and as mm -hmm. as because attacking something as Brian Wilson who, who dealt with a lot of depression and dealt with a lot of, and, and still does, I assume he's still with us. Uh, but he, he, a lot of depression, a lot of, um, sort of anxiety and a lot of things that come with that. It was misdiagnosed for years, which is documented in this movie. But, um, uh, it's, it's really interesting to sort of see him play the manic depression, mm -hmm. uh, the early sides of that. And then, and then John Cusack sort of the, the overly medicated and, uh, we rarely get to see Cusack so in such a sweet role. He's such mm -hmm. a sweet guy, and you don't think, oh, Cusack's a sweet guy. Usually, he's dark and brooding and has a little bit of an edge, and he's kind of a little bit too emo. But and I'm a fan of Cusack, and that's me saying that. Mm -hmm. But I would I would urge people to check it out. It's definitely like an interesting way to tell. You know, if Steve Jobs is an interesting way to tell a biopic, I think this is definitely one too. Well, um, and then Elizabeth Banks, who's yes, predominantly Elizabeth known Banks. for comedy, uh, really powerful performance as really the great. woman who falls in love with Brian Wilson when he's older and. Uh, really becomes his champion, his champion. and his fighter uh, for him in this dire situation that he's uh, found yeah, himself she's in. She's really, really. I, I feel like could have got a little bit more love in the in the nominations, but right. there is so much. Like I said, um, not many good movies this year. Um, so anyway, uh, I would also put um, Straight Outta Compton on a list. I know it, it was sort of a surprise hit, and uh, and I was I would I didn't really know what to expect going in and watch it. I definitely wanted to see it, but. Um, as entertaining as, as a biopics get very interesting, definitely from a different point of view than I am used to, you know, being a white male from the South. Um, mm -hmm. it's so fascinating to sort of see the, uh, the, 
quote unquote other side or see what was going on, especially in the time when, uh, you know, it's the, the story of the uh, rap group NWA and to see, you know, even when they were at the height of their fame, the sort of bias and all the stuff that was going on with them. And, uh, and I, I think maybe should have been in the, in the best, uh, picture Oscar race, but definitely, um, I, I'm blanking on the actor's name, but the one who played easy E the guy who played easy, such a phenomenal job. He did such a good job. And I, I was really blown away that he didn't get some sort of nomination because, uh, really impressed and mm-hmm. the cast as a whole, uh, really enjoyed, uh, that movie and a couple, um, and then Paul Giamatti in both that yes, and Love and Mercy, <laughs> the evil manager. I know. I, 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 I <laughs> nailed that in 2015. I, I tweeted that earlier this year, but the, the, like, if I learn one thing from musical <laughs> biopics this year, it's don't put Paul Giamatti in charge of your career. Right. Um, a couple, I am a big comedy guy. And uh, so a couple of comedies that I just sort of like to get out there, that, uh, one that might be on people's radar and, and one that I don't know is, that I definitely think deserves a little bit of a look. Both these are hard R. Both these have a lot of content, so if you get bothered by that stuff, don't come yelling at me. Um, So definitely do some reading up before you just listen to podcasts and go watch movies. But um, Trainwreck, uh, the Amy Schumer, Judd Apatow uh, film that came out this year, uh, she wrote and starred in it, and and he directed it. Um, I'm a big Judd Apatow fan through and through. I think everything he's done is great. I really enjoy him and his voice and the way he directs and the way he is such a fan of young people people coming up and he embraces them and really shines a spotlight on new talent. I think he could go the complete opposite way and just be this sort of selfish creative being. But instead he takes all of the light that's on him because of his successes and shines on others. And I think Amy Schumer is a, is a, a, such an interesting and valuable subject to, for him to sort of be like, Hey, I believe in you write a movie about your experience and let's do this. And it not only is, I mean, it's sort of branded as this sex comedy, but it really has, so much depth and the acting from Amy Schumer in this movie, um, she really goes some, some, uh, deep places that you don't expect and you don't see in a normal, um, I wouldn't even call it a romantic comedy, but you don't normally see in an, in a comedy period. And it's not about like a lot of romantic comedies that deal with, you know, like, are they going to, you know, are they going to get, is it going to get the girl at the end? It's about a relationship and how one person who is used to destroying that relationship has to deal in the confines of something that's actually good for her. And so Amy Schumer's character has to sort of hold on to what dealing with sort of what she thinks she deserves because of the way that love has been portrayed to her, um, by her upbringing and her parents, um, and by what she truly deserves, which is this great guy who really, you know, believes in her, um, and loves her for who she is. So I, if you haven't seen Trainwreck for whatever reason, it was a, it was a really big hit this year, but if you haven't seen it, I, I would recommend it. And, and she wrote the screenplay. So it really it. is her voice. In the it screen. is yeah. completely. And I, I'm, and I'm so happy for her, especially. But um, and then the other one is uh, a movie, is, is a small indie comedy called Sleeping with Other People, um, which its title would, is very evocative, and it is a sex comedy in a way. There, there is sex in it, um, but it, it's interesting. The take on this movie could have been completely cliche, and it goes some places that romantic comedies, if you will, need to go. Have you seen this movie? I have. Um, and you, and you might differ my opinion, but I really enjoyed. The, I'm with you on this. Are you okay? Yeah. Uh, but I really enjoyed how the two characters played by Jason Sudeikis wonderfully and Alison Brie. Well, the, the movie is essentially these two p- characters who uh, they both lose their virginity to each other in, in the beginning of the movie in college. And then they find each other again, sort of randomly um, 10 years later and sort of dealing with the things that have happened 
in the turmoil of their lives 10 years in those 10 years between. And they seemingly could very easily have just got together and been these sort of like sex buddies, if you will. And that could have been easily where the movie goes, but it doesn't. They actually make a conscious decision um, to sort of become friends and, and remove sex from the equation. And in, in a lot of ways, reminds me of the best parts of like when Harry met Sally or something like that. And it was so nice when I saw that that's where the movie was going to sort of see how, how it functions inside of that. Because so often you sort of see all the different tropes and you see like, okay, I, I see where this is going, but there's so many different scenes and, and, and um, there's so many different parts of this movie that you don't really see coming. And they're, it's just enjoyable throughout. And, and of course there are, you know, it, it does sort of wrap up with a, a bow a little bit too tightly for me. But overall, I, I think that uh, th this writer director uh, made a movie a couple years ago called Bachelorette, which I also really liked, which also did that where it kind of flipped the the sort of bridesmaid model on its head where it's like, oh, you think you know where it's going. And um, it's definitely sort of a dark comedy in a lot of ways and uh, is, is very liberal in its tone and in, in dealing with sexuality and relationships. But with that in mind, I am, it makes me so excited about the future of the idea because I'm a big fan of romantic comedies um, because I have a heart, Jeff, and I, and I want to see people in love. <laughs> but I like, but I do get a little bit tired of the same story beats and it's very interesting, you know, to see sort of the anti-Nicholas Sparks, the anti, you know, like we're going in a different mm -hmm. direction because people and relationships are very uh, nuanced and, and, and depending on the two elements involved, the two people involved, the story is going to be a little bit different. So mm -hmm. I, th this movie may be very excited sleeping with other people. So, um, which I, I believe might be on Netflix, but uh, it's definitely one of those that didn't get a lot of play in the theaters, but might be coming out soon on demand. So. Well, and I'll start with, I guess maybe what's unfortunate about this movie is it's so sexually crass. Yeah. I, I mean, I actually I don't even remember if there's actual sex scenes. Maybe there is. There probably is. They're more comedic than. But but it, uh, just in terms of the dialogue, so much of it is sexually crass and explicit that um, it's going to turn off a lot of people that would normally be uh, very inclined to this movie, um, and, and so that's unfortunate. That said, that crassness aside. This feels like a Nora Ephron movie mm. in its tone, mm -hmm. and not only in its tone, but the richness and the authenticity of those characters and what they're dealing with. And so, again, for even as sexually crass as it is, man, it gets men and women right. Yeah. I mean, it's just so dead on accurate. And again, in a way that Nora Ephron at her best did as well. And so, um, uh, yeah, it's there's like a big caveat that I've I put next to it, particularly you know, given you know some of the people in the audience who might be listening to this. But um, you know, there is a, a part of me that hopes that maybe a, a studio at some point says, "Hey, do you want to make a PG-13 version right, of what right. you do? Because you do it extremely well, particularly because the romantic comedy genre, as it relates to uh, major studios making romantic comedies, might be." the worst genre right now in contemporary cinema. They're just, I mean, there aren't good romantic comedies. No. There just aren't. Um, and again, until you 
start getting singular voices like Amy Schumer or somebody, most of these are just very typical studio formulas, the easiest, most simple types of jokes that don't have the charm of like romantic comedies of the 90s in particular, right. uh, which is really sort of a golden age for romantic comedies. Um, we just don't see that charm anymore. We don't see sort of that old fashionedness. And again, for even as sexually crass as this is, there's also a very old fashioned really sort of is. charm to it. Um, again, because I think that element comes from how true it gets men and women. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so even with the caveats, at the end of the day, it really is super effective at what it's trying to do in terms of being an effective romantic comedy. Yeah, well, that, uh, that's the end of my list. Um, um, well, I'll just throw uh, just a li little Oscar. I won't go into in-depth in terms of like predictions or anything, but I will say I'm really looking forward to this year's ceremony because in most years at this point uh, in the game, uh, we pretty much know and maybe even a lot of times really do know who's going to win Best Picture. And usually it comes down to there's clearly a front runner that has been winning all the Industry Guild Awards, and now there's just a path to inevitability. Uh, or at most, the drama is just between like maybe two pictures. Like a couple of years ago, it was like, is it going to be 12 Years a Slave or Gravity? You yeah. know, so that was the drama. Birdman Boyhood. Right, right, exactly. But even then, uh, by the time the Oscars came around, since Birdman had won the Directors Guild, had won the Producers Guild, um, had won the SAG Award for Best Ensemble Cast, I mean, it was like, yeah, all the professional guilds were awarding Birdman. Yeah. Of course, the Oscar's going to go to Birdman as well. And so even there, the drama was very minimal. But at this point, yeah, it is like all the guilds are giving. Yeah, they're, they're choosing different movies. Yeah. So the Producers Guild chose The Big Short. Uh, last week, the Screen Actors Guild uh, chose Spotlight. Spotlight. Uh, tonight, the day that we record, will be the Directors Guild. And there's a very solid chance that the Directors Guild will go either with George Miller for Mad Max Fury Road or uh, Ridley Scott for The Martian, who's not even nominated for an Oscar. Mm. So um, so we could what we could end up seeing is the three major guilds, which more times than not agree with each other, could be making three completely different choices, which means going into Oscar night, the best picture race is really wide open, not only because the potential of three different movies that could be chosen, not to mention... Um, of course, you know, The Revenant could be chosen by the Directors Guild as well. But, uh, you know, he won just, Inuritu won just last year for Birdman. So it's, it'd be very unprecedented for a director to have two films win back-to-back -back Best Picture. I don't think it's ever happened. If it's going to happen, I mean, this would be it. Yeah, now, the, the advantage it has, it leads with 12 nominations. So clearly across the board, the Academy loves this film, including the acting branch, which, you know, nominated DiCaprio and Hardy. And that's the biggest branch of the Academy. So there's a lot in favor of The Revenant. But, um, but again, the guilds are all over the place. And particularly, uh, if, even, or even if it does, Inuritu does win the Directors Guild tonight, You've got, at the very least, a three-way race, I think, between The Revenant, uh, Spotlight, and The Big Short. But then because you have that three-way race, it makes it that much easier to votes to be split between the, those three films. And does The Martian somehow sneak through yeah. uh, sort of Argo style? Because people are like, why wasn't Ridley Scott nominated the same way they were about Ben Affleck when he was not nominated yeah. for Best Director for Argo? He ends up getting Best Picture. Does somehow does The Martian sneak through when the race is as divided as it is? So even if there's sort of three favorites, because there's three and maybe four favorites, they could be splitting votes and cause another film to emerge that you're not seeing coming at all. So 
Granted, the flip side of that coin is the four the four acting categories, those are basically locks at this yeah. point. There's gonna yeah. be no drama there. DiCaprio will win for the Revenant for lead actor. Brie Larson will win for Room lead actress. Supporting actor will be Stallone for Creed. Supporting actress will be Alicia Vikander for the Danish girl, even though I wish it was for her ex machina, as yeah. we talked about before. But uh, she just seems like she's poised and uh, supporting actress often goes to these up and coming ingenue actresses and it's, she's had a phenomenal year and just so, th- so those four acting categories are fairly predictable, but the fact that the, both the directing category and then especially the best picture category is so wide open, it just makes it uh, way more exciting than we usually get in yeah. an Oscar race at this point. And so I'm actually crossing my fingers that, uh, tonight at the Directors Guild, that it doesn't go to spotlight, that it doesn't go to the big short to really kind of cement that this is a <laughs> wide open race and anything can happen in that best picture category. So more than anything, that's that's what I'm excited about this year. And, and the reason I'm excited about it is because I feel it should be that way every year. Yeah. You know, even if I agree with the one movie that everybody's coalescing around and, you know, getting behind it's still like, but there's a lot of other good movies out there every year that deserve recognition and even awards. Yeah. And so it, it, it never should be so clear cut that everybody's agreeing on the one movie, I think. Even, again, even if it's my number one. And so uh, to me, this is what every year should be like. There's always plenty of great work out there, worthy of recognition, worthy of actual award wins. And I think we're going to get that kind of diversity even though we don't have it racially, we might have it artistically <laughs> yeah. in the choices this year at the Academy Awards. So that's super exciting to me. Yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> okay. Except for yes, Jeff. <laughs> well, um, I'll let you close out with whatever final thoughts uh, you might have. But before you do, I'll just kind of set up. Of course, we're going to close out. The last music score option will be from Star Wars The Force Awakens. Um, I mean... You know, uh, it, it's it's it is the movie event of the year, yes. and it is the movie event of the year not only in its hype and its anticipation, but in its delivery and in its follow through. It is everything that we hoped it would be, and uh, and so it's 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 the music note that we have to end on as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I will. Uh, I'll, the only thing I want to end with is uh, thank you guys for listening, and, it, and this was. So much fun to get to sit here, and thank you, Jeff, once again for taking the time. Oh, and uh, I'm, I'm to gonna, do this. I'm, uh, yeah. While I think about, it, I'm gonna pimp my URL. That's what I was about to say. I was like, what, oh, what's, yeah. what is your what is your blog that people should absolutely not only uh, visit but subscribe so they can get your uh, your uh, email alerts as well. Yeah. So my movie blog is is simply called HoustonMovieBlog.com. So and Houston is spelled H-U-S-T-O-N, not like the city, um, <laughs> but like the filmmaker John Houston, H-U-S-T-O-N. So HoustonMovieBlog.com. I actually call my movie blog I Can't Unsee That. Um, but I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't have that be my URL because if somebody mistypes something, <laughs> maybe it takes them to a site they really don't want to go to. That's smart. That's smart. Um, but uh, anyway, so that, that that's it. And, and there, I mean, not only will you see a spoiler-free Star Wars uh, review that I wrote, you know, the, the day it came out, but um, I have two other Star Wars pieces that if, you know, if you want to delve into it, there's one called Han Solo Isn't Who You Think He Is. And that piece uh, basically me- breaks down to uh, what he, uh, the, the motif he's, he's being used as within The Force Awakens and then what that might mean for the future films. Mm. So it's this it's mix of breaking down 
how vital he is beneath the surface of the story that we're seeing to the whole fabric of The Force Awakens and what that might mean for episodes eight and nine. Um, but then, and then there's also one within that piece and as well as another piece, there's an article where I basically start breaking down kind of what I hinted at before. I, I really have a problem with people just talking about how, this, how The Force Awakens is just a copycat of A New Hope. I have a piece on my blog called uh, Gripes of The Force Awakens, uh, that it's just a New Hope carbon copy. Those gripes seriously need to stop. That's sort of the whole premise of the piece. And there's actually a video that I link within. I, I break that down in terms of what I write, but then I also link to a video that basically cuts back and forth of the first two trilogies about the repeating motifs. Oh, and so it's saying, okay, we we see this here in episode four, just like we do in episode one. We see this in episode five, just like we ended up seeing in episode two, and how it's mirroring. And there's these circular rep- repeating motifs. All that to say, for all these people who are saying, "Man, JJ's uncreative," right? It's like he's just doing what the mythology's been doing all along. Yeah, and more to the point, he's doing it very well. And so I just. To me, it's it, it's an easy gripe to make, but it's also to me sort of an uneducated gripe to make because you're not comprehending sort of the essence of what s- the mythology and the force is all about. So, uh, but yeah, HoustonMovieBlog.com. You can. Uh, write. It's more than just Star Wars, but those right, are, right, 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 right. <laughs> those are three uh, pieces yeah. that I definitely but, enjoyed. Yeah. So uh, predominantly, I write film reviews, and then I also just highlight different um, uh, news events that happen as they pop up that I think are very interesting to track within the industry, and giving my opinions and takes on those uh, news events as they happen. Check it out, guys. Well, thank you, Jeff, for having me over, and thank you for uh, continuing to be my favorite person to talk movies with. Hmm. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, And hopefully I'll see you at some point in the podcast future.